Let's just take a moment and thank God. Father, we thank you for the healing river. This is a beautiful image, a beautiful symbol that you have placed within your holy word. Not talking about an actual river, but talking about you, oh God. You are the one that cleanses us. You are the one that sets us free. You are the one that provides healing for the nations. And we just thank you, Father, for the privilege of being called to your side to be near to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, through the word this morning, that you would help us to see how you intend for leaders within your church to be appointed, ordained, have hands laid upon them. And we pray, God, that you would help us, you would remind us once again how these men that you have called and chosen and appointed to this task are ultimately to be used for your glory to help people draw closer to you. We pray you'd help us to see that this morning. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And uh, as you're making your way to uh, 1 Timothy 5, I also want you to kind of tear off the corner of your bulletin this morning, and I want you to make your way to 1 Corinthians 15, and I want you to stick that uh, little bookmark as you tear off a corner of your bulletin. I want you to stick that in 1 Corinthians 15. While you're making your way to 1 Timothy chapter 5, I want to remind you of one announcement. Uh, I deliberately waited so that I could make sure to get your attention and focus in on this. I want to highlight this. Our dear brother is retiring after over 50 years in ministry, faithful pastoral ministry, and we and Sheila as well is sort of taking retirements of sort. We know there's no pastoral without Sheila, and uh, we're going to be having a special dinner not a dinner, a dessert, sort of a gathering, uh, sort of ice cream social on July the 8th, Saturday, Sunday evening, July the 8th, uh, to recognize this amazing man for all the ways that he has labored and served our king and all the ways that our king has worked through him to serve and bless us. And I think it's appropriate. Before we jump in this morning, would you just show your love and affection for Pastor Al and Sheila? Give them a huge, huge hand. So for those of you in the overflow room, we didn't hear you. You have to clap louder, please. I have too much fun. Hey, thanks, you guys. You did awesome. You did awesome. I appreciate that. I have too much fun with those guys over there. Anyway, let's get down to business, shall we? We've been looking the last couple of weeks at elders. We've been, looking, we've been working our way through the last part of 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we looked at the fact that elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. We also looked at the fact that an elder is accountable to his congregation, that he is accountable to the church in the same way that any other member of the church is accountable. So we looked to the first section in, in verse 17. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. We looked at compensation, paying for your pastor. And then the next section where he says, don't admit a charge. Elders are subject to the same uh, requirements of accountability that any member within the church is, that uh, in the same way that we're to be looking after each other, loving each other, shepherding each other, we also have a responsibility to be, to be checking upon our pastors as well, to make sure that they're honoring the word as well. And we notice that um, it is a serious thing when someone who is in a position 
position of pastoral leadership abuses that position and then leads the church astray. That is a very, very serious thing that is warned about repeatedly in Scripture, which brings us to the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is to say we should not be quick and we should not rush individuals into pastoral leadership until we've done our due diligence to make sure that they have the character that God calls for within any man who is to hold the office of pastor. I want to just reread this scripture for you this morning. We're going to be picking it up in verse 22, 1 Timothy 5, 22. If you'll join with me, it says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now that verse, in verse 22, there are three imperative verbs that are packed into that verse. Three strong exhortations, three strong commands. And I'm going to, the ESV is a very faithful translation, but I'm going to just change one word here in the ESV to help you see something later on in the sermon. So going back to verse 22, it says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor fellowship in the sins of others. Greek word there that is translated participate comes from koinonia, which we translate elsewhere, fellowship. So he says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor fellowship in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Springboarding off of this command to keep yourself pure, the Apostle Paul to Timothy then says in verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sins, returning to this issue of ordaining or appointing elders, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to the judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now this command that we're looking at this morning, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, do not be quick, do not rush to ordain or to install men into the office of pastor is a particularly poignant warning for us today, and not only us here at First Baptist Church, as we're looking at adding to our eldership two men who are right now, as we speak, working their way through the eldership process, but it is a poignant warning that every church across Canada really needs to stop and give heed to. This is an important warning for you to give to friends that you may have, brothers and sisters who worship in other churches. The reason why this is a poignant reminder that we need to hear is because within Canada and within the church, we are experiencing a crisis of leadership. There is a leadership crisis that is plaguing evangelical churches, and not even just evangelical churches, but all churches, whether mainline, whether uh, the high magisterial churches or the evangelical churches. There is a leadership crisis, a crisis of leadership in every church across every denomination all across Canada. According to the Canadian Occupational Projection System, which is a system that our government uses in order to adjudicate immigration to decide who should come into our country with what types of skills our labor force is going to require, they have determined that the future of clergy or pastoral ministry within Canada is going to experience a significant contraction between 2017 and 2026, that is over the next 10 years, they are projecting a loss 
or I should say an opening of 13,200 positions within churches across Canada, 13,000 openings for pastors or clergy or priests, depending on your denomination, that will go unanswered. Openings that will have no one to fill them. 13,200. Ray Schultz, who recently did an article for uh, the Globe and Mail, he's the Archbishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Canada, made the comment that he expects by 2020, in the next three years, fully 30% of his denomination's churches will be without a minister, and there will be no ministers to consider, no applications for the position. 22% of all clergy openings, 22% of all pastoral ministry openings over the next 10 years, therefore, according to Canada Stats and the Department of Labor, 22% are projected to be filled by immigrants. That's a sobering reality. If you're thinking about the numbers for a second, out of 13,000 potential opportunities to lead God's people, to preach and proclaim the word of God, 22% of those positions are hoped to be filled by people from other countries that these churches will not have met, will not have had the opportunity or the privilege to observe firsthand as they function as pastors within whatever denomination they're a part of, fully 22% of the individuals that are going to be leading our churches in the next 10 years are people who are not even from Canada, are not even familiar with the cultures and the customs with the values of Canadians, and maybe they're great. We don't know. But that's the warning that the scriptures present to us today. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. This is a warning that every church needs to hear, especially as we're looking at what's about to happen over the next 10 years within our country. The Apostle Paul makes the statement to Timothy. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. It's an unusual expression. When we hear this expression, based on other comments that the Apostle Paul has made to Timothy in 2 Timothy and elsewhere, we know that when Timothy was installed into office, when he was appointed to be an elder or a pastor, he had literal physical hands placed upon him. They prayed for him. And Paul mentions the fact that Timothy was endowed with special grace to conduct his ministry through that installation process. However, we would be wrong to understand this term as somehow imbibing, imparting a special grace, as though somehow when we put our hands on someone that it is us who is bestowing grace upon that person. Now, the actual act of laying on of hands absolutely does confer a a sense of authority, a sense of responsibility. God is said to recognize the choice and the call of the church. Elsewhere, it is understood that the church is recognizing the call and the direction and the choice of God. One thing we need to be clear here is that if we try to suggest that through the laying on of hands, somehow it is us who is bestowing 
uh, some sort of special grace upon the ministers that have been chosen to serve us, we have missed the fundamental meaning of this passage. It is true, pastors are given grace, they are given gifts and abilities to execute their responsibilities, to fulfill their job, their ministry before the church, but it is God who bestows those gifts. Those gifts aren't somehow zapped like lightning through our hands when we lay hands on people, which then begs the question, what is the actual significance of this? We know that hands are laid, but did you know that the meaning of this term in classical Greek means literally a raising of the hands? This is a society that established itself as a democracy and then later within Roman culture became a republic. This is a society that would appoint leaders, representatives of the people through a process of stretching out the hand. And that's literally the meaning of this expression here, a stretching out of the hand. In the same way that when we have Baptist business meetings and we need to make decisions on things, we call upon you, the members of the church, after prayer and after searching and looking for the leading of the Holy Spirit to stretch out your hand. We say, by show of hands, let's see it. When we make that statement, hey, by show of hands, what do you guys think about this? We're making the exact same statement that Paul is making here when he says to Timothy, do not be hasty on the stretching out of your hands. Now, we do know that this absolutely can mean, in other contexts, the placing of our hands upon a person. But the idea that Paul is driving home to Timothy here in this particular passage is that when it comes to the choosing of elders, to the appointing of pastors, that this is not some arbitrary thing to be engaged in flippantly or quickly This has huge, huge ramifications, not only for the church, but for every individual member within the church and for all those that the individual members of this church will come into contact with. It's a sobering prospect. You say, Pastor, how do you get all of that? Look again at verse 22. There are three imperatives to help you see the significance of what we're doing when we appoint pastors. I'd like to start with the last imperative, so coming to the end of the verse, and then working our way forward to the beginning of the verse to show you how these three imperatives build upon each other. In verse 22, he says, uh, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's an imperative. Don't be quick to lay on hands. Second command, don't be taking fellowship or don't be fellowshipping in the sins of others. So now if you're walking with me here, you understand that to be quick to laying on of hands is further elaborated upon by this second imperative, don't be quick to fellowship in the sins of others. And then it's followed by this third imperative where he says, keep yourself pure. In verse 22, keep yourself pure. So this idea of purity is that we are not going to be tainted by the sins or the corruption of the world. This isn't just from a spiritual perspective. It absolutely is spiritual, but it implies, it touches upon everything that we would do physically. Now, the, the elder Timothy here undoubtedly had some sort of a stomach issue, an intestinal sort of struggle. We're not really sure. Paul doesn't elaborate or go into detail here. 
But one thing that we recognize is that within the first century, water wasn't as pure as it is today. They didn't have all the filtration systems. They didn't have lead filtration systems. They didn't have things to screen for bacteria. They didn't have reverse osmosis. They didn't have any of the gizmos that we have today in order to make sure that they had pure water. So they very regularly would put a little bit of wine into the water that they would drink because the alcohol content of the wine would kill any bacteria that was in the water. It was observed and clearly understood that if you wanted to make sure your water was clean, you might mix it with a little bit of wine. Timothy, at some point, makes a resolution that he, as an act of devotion to his God, is not going to partake of wine. But Paul says, keep yourself pure. And undoubtedly, this commitment that Timothy makes, this is a commitment of purity that he's making. And so when he says, keep yourself pure, Paul wants to reiterate to Timothy, just so you know, you also need to keep yourself strong, which means you can't be retching your guts out every time you take a drink of water. So making that statement, keep yourself pure, he adds then this sort of uh, caveat but when it comes to drinking water, go ahead and put a little wine in your water. Now that is rightly put into parentheses because that is a tangent to his main point. And his main point is that purity, he will contaminate himself. He will make himself spiritually impure. He will contribute to unrighteousness based upon the men that he participates in ordaining and appointing into pastoral ministry, which is why Paul says in the next verse that the sins of some men, now he's returning to this issue of appointing elders or pastors in verse 24, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to the judgment. When you look at them, you don't have to look hard. It's obvious. These guys don't have the character. They are not committed. They don't have the faith. They're not passionate for Christ. When you look at their lives, even though they may say they want to be elders, even though they are aspiring to the office of pastor, when you look at their lives, it is very clear they don't measure up according to the qualifications that Timothy laid out in 1 Timothy 3. So he says the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to the judgment, as though the sins are leading them along, saying, here's where we're going to go before the Lord. And he says the sins of others appear later, which reinforces the admonition not to be quick. Some men are very good at hiding their character flaws, especially if we're to be calling men from other countries to fill pulpits here in Canada. This is something we, as the evangelical church within Canada, are going to very much so struggle with in the next 10 years. How will we be able to observe those men who are better at concealing their sins when they don't even live in our country? The sins of others appear later. Verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Again, emphasizing the idea that when we look at men to hold the pulpit to serve as shepherds within our church. We should be looking for men who are already engaged in doing that apart from having the title conferred upon them, apart from being appointed to the position. Again, how will men be serving our church and doing good works in our church that we can observe 
if they're not even from our country. We return to this issue, keep yourself pure. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is that when it comes to appointing men to pastoral ministry, you need to be looking at their character, at their good works, at the contributions they make in their church, and you need to be careful about it because if you're to keep yourself pure, that is, if you're not to be contaminated, if you're not to blemish yourself, if you're not to engage in some act of unrighteousness, then the person you're putting into position of authority as a pastor weighs on that. There's no escaping it. A couple of weeks ago, I was resurfacing my driveway. It's that time of year where the snow melts and all the cracks show up in the asphalt and you realize you've got to do something about it or it's just going to get worse next year. And of course, ants had crawled into the cracks in my driveway and built ant mounds. And of course, that's really troublesome because then I got to sprinkle out the poison, I got to kill them, then I got to wash them away. It slows the whole process down. One of the things you need to do is you need to wash your driveway so it's clean before you roll over a new covering, a new uh, seal on it. And so I said to myself, here's what I'll do. I'll just take my pressure washer and I'll just pressure wash the ant w- ants away. And I'll just pressure wash the ant beds away. That's the temptation. If you know ants, you know that's not going to keep them away for very long. They'll come back. They'll rebuild the mound. But I, I flirted with the idea. And so I'm sitting there and I'm observing the ants. And uh, it's one of those things where you know you have a chore to do and you don't really want to do it. So you kind of go out and stand on your driveway for a little while and hem and haw. Make excuses like, oh, do I want to do this today? Do I have the time? I was watching these ants, and it's interesting just to watch ants. They follow along on well-worn trails. They, they follow a distinct path. They're going everywhere, looking for food, bringing it back to the mound. And as you watch these ants, little tiny creatures, they never really come into contact with each other. They, they come right up next to each other. The little antennas kind of sense each other, and then they go around. They're very efficient. Now, as I was thinking about the message this week, the sermon to be preached this morning, I recognize that within Canada, that's how a lot of us are. We'll come up to each other, we'll talk to each other, but we still very much so regard ourselves as distinct individuals, as though the actions we engage in impact only ourselves and not those around us. Like individual ants going along on our well-worn trails, doing what we always do. So I sprinkled the poison, waited a couple of days, they were all dead. Then I came along with my pressure washer and I blasted them all away. And as the water was running, I was thinking about the water. Water is not like an ant at all. The water intermix. The ant mound, I hit it with the water and it just goes all across into all the different streams and puddles of water as it flows across. And that's actually probably a better analogy for how we need to be thinking of ourselves. We are not ants barely coming into contact with each other. We are individuals. We do have distinct spheres of existence. We live in our homes. We go to our job. We go to the grocery store. We go to our churches. But it is a mistake to think that just because we are individuals that our actions do not have a ripple effect outward away from ourselves to impact all those around us. 
While it is true that we're individuals with concrete bodies, it is also true that within the spiritual realm, everything we do, it has an impact spiritually on those around us. You say, oh, I don't believe in any of that. Just go back to the garden. When Adam decided, eh, I'm just going to support my wife in this whole thing. I'm just going to take a bite. And now look at all of creation, which Paul says in Romans 8 is longing for the day when they can be set free from the futility to which they had been subjugated, this not of their own doing, but because of Adam, so that they are now longing for, as it says in Romans chapter 8, the revealing of the sons of glory, that it might be redeemed and ransomed from the uselessness and the fruitlessness and the death and the corruption to which it has been subjugated. When Adam takes the bite, did I say apple a second ago? We don't know that it was an apple. I always try to tell myself, don't say it was a forbidden apple. When Adam takes a bite of the fruit from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of death, it impacts his sons and daughters after him, and it impacts this whole world around him which is why the Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 12, makes this statement, do not be conformed to this world. The exhortation there is you've been redeemed, you've been ransomed by Christ, so don't be conformed. Now think about the nature of that statement. There's nothing you have to do to follow along the path of the world There's nothing you have to do to walk in the path of unrighteousness. You just don't have to do anything. You're being carried along like water in a river. You're flowing along banks. You're going down this path. You're being carried along. There is a spiritual influence that's being exerted upon you. You don't have to do anything. You naturally will be conformed. You will be pulled upon by this world. There is a spiritual influence that is exerting itself on you, and it's dragging you along, which is why Paul says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This conformity, this pressure to walk the path of unrighteousness is something to which we have all contributed, and it is something which those around us have contributed to such that even the associations and the friendships that we engage in, the relationships that we maintain, the coffee shops that we go to, the banter we engage in at our workplace can potentially be used to drag us down the path of wickedness. If the conversations that we have just with those around us if the friendships that we maintain just with those around us can influence us, how much more so the guy who preaches to us every single week? You say, I don't know about all this, Pastor. Let me show you a couple of verses. The first one from Psalm 50. Don't flip there. Just just listen. God speaking to the nation of Israel in Psalm 50 rebuking them because they have not maintained faithfulness to him, makes this statement. What right have you, talking to Israel, this is God talking to Israel, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant upon your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Notice the example he gives. You hate my words, you cast my words behind you, you hate discipline. Why should you be a part of my covenant people? Here's what he's pointing at. If you see a thief, 
you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. The issue that is pointed at in Psalm 50 is that the friends that they're keeping, the people they're hanging out with, are contributing to them having a broken relationship with God. This doesn't just happen in the world. It also happens in the church. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All kinds of problems happening in Corinth. We come to the end of the book, close to the end of the book, and one of the issues that the Apostle Paul addresses is the issue of the resurrection. Cornerstone doctrine. If the resurrection isn't true, what are any of us doing? I mean, it's the foundation of all of our hope, the fact that Christ has actually defeated death for us. He has come back from the grave. He is resurrected. And yet you still had people there in Corinth that were denying this. In 1529, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead aren't even raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, if the resurrection is not true as some are alleging, then he goes on to say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. His whole point is, yes, just go out and enjoy life. Live it up to the fullest. If there is no resurrection, then there is no tomorrow. There is nothing beyond the grave. You might as well focus on getting the most pleasure and the most happiness that you possibly can out of this life because there is no life to come. At this point, you'd expect Paul to say, hey, you guys need to hit the books You need to start working on your systematic theology. You need to start looking at some scriptures here. You need to start drilling down on this idea that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what you'd expect. But knowledge is always influenced by the moral character of those we call friends, which leads him to his next statement. Some of you guys are denying the resurrection. He makes the statement in verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. A part of your inability to believe one of the foundational bedrock, if not the bedrock doctrine of Christianity, is some of the people that you're associating with. And of course, within the church at Corinth, that includes teachers that are not teaching the truth. Your fellowship is corrupting you. And that's what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy. That brings us to the next imperative. The ESV will translate it. He said, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor, as the ESV translates it, nor take part in the sins of others. But the reality of what is actually being said here, the Greek word, it comes from koinonia. It's the verbal form of the noun. The noun is fellowship, And the verbal form can mean either to share or to take part, which is how the ESV translates it. But the idea here is that we take part or we fellowship in the sins or the mistakes, sins is the better word, of those whom we as a church are responsible for ordaining into pastoral ministry. If we put a guy into pastoral office to preach to us, and we've been quick about it, and now we've given this guy a platform, 
a position to preach to us. And we find out after the fact that he's unorthodox, that he is heretical in his approach, that he is not a faithful man, that he does not have good character. We now have supported this person into this position. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is the reason you're not to be hasty in putting people into this position is because when you do, you share in the responsibility of whatever comes out of that ministry. You fellowship in that pastor's ministry. So we have to be very careful in appointing leaders into pastoral ministry. That first imperative, do not be hasty, or other translations will render it, do not be quick. The danger of that is further illustrated by every imperative that follows. Don't be hasty in appointing men to pastoral ministry. Don't be hasty in ordaining or laying on his hands. Because when you do that, you fellowship, you share in whatever comes out of that pulpit ministry, whatever comes out of that shepherd's shepherding, you have a responsibility for that. You, the church, share a responsibility in the man you have appointed to preach and to lead your church. You fellowship in that. And of course, we are called in all of our decisions to be pure and to be righteous. So each one of these imperatives builds on each other. Don't be hasty, because if you are and you do a bad job, you share in whatever that man does. And if you share in unwickedness, then you're not keeping yourself pure. This last week, I was explaining all of this to the guys on Wednesday night, and the question was posed, what exactly is our process here at First Baptist Church for ordaining or laying on hands of men who are entering into pastoral ministry? Well, there's a whole lot of hand stretching that goes on. If you've been listening, you know I'm referring to a vote, right? There's a whole lot of show of hands that goes on. There's a whole lot of laying on of hands that goes on. If a man aspires, you'll recall from 1 Timothy 3 when we preached on this a number of months ago, if a man aspires to the office of pastoral ministry, to the office of elder, because he aspires to it, it's incumbent upon him. It's his responsibility to approach the elders here at First Baptist Church and to share with us that he is sensing internally a subjective call to pastoral ministry. Following him sharing that with us, the elders will spend time with that man, evaluating his life and his character according to 1 Timothy 3 as well as 1 Timothy 5. We will understand whether or not he has the character qualifications necessary as spelled out in 1 Timothy 3 based upon the good works we can observe him doing which are alluded to in 1 Timothy 5. This is not a man who's just going to pop out of the clear blue air and he never knew where he came from or what he's all about and he says, I'm called of God to pastor. And then of course you say, well, of course you're anointed. No, not at all. This is a guy who's going to be known to us. This is a guy who's going to be familiar to our church congregation. We're going to be able to look at his character and understand whether or not he measures up. We're going to be able to look at the things he does, the ways that he serves in the church. So the first part of our process is a man approaches us. He says, I want to... I feel called to pastoral ministry. Our elders then sit down with him and talk with him. Talk with his wife. Uh, we, we review his calling. We review his statement of faith. We, we look at the things he believes. We look at the ways in which he serves in our church. 
And then we have a vote at our board meeting in which we recommend, by a stretching of hands, to introduce this person to the church congregation for the congregation's approval, not for him to become an elder, but for him to enter what may be a two to three to five to ten year process. I say that tongue in cheek. You hope it doesn't take that long. In which he will train and study before we install him as an elder in our church. First step, he comes to our board. We review him. We vote yes, we vote no. If we vote yes, we take him to the church. We say to the church, hey, this man is expressing to us a desire to serve as a pastor. We've looked at his life. We've looked at his character. We've talked to his family. We've talked to his wife. We believe this is a man who might indeed be called to pastoral ministry. What say you, church? The church then has opportunity to ask questions. And if they vote favorably, if they stretch their hands favorably, all that does is allow this person to enter into a process of training and discipleship. It's a two-step process. Many of you are aware we have two men here. James Casson, who has chicken pox and isn't here today, as well as Tyler Walkton, whose son has chicken pox, and yet he's still here today. Be sure to give James a little bit of a hard time about that. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just teasing. It's good that he's not here. We don't want to catch his chicken pox. But essentially, these men enter into a process of discipleship. And for quite a number of you, you get breakfast at Denny's on Saturday mornings, don't you? I know who you are, and you know we're there at least once a month on Saturday morning for about three to four hours reviewing major doctrines of Scripture. They have assignments that they have to do. They have a lot of reading. There is thousands upon thousands of pages of different materials, different textbooks that they read in addition to the scriptures. And we work through all of that together once a month over breakfast at Denny's. It's an incredible self-reflective time for me as a pastor. Their most recent assignment was to interview other pastors around town regarding their views on the doctrine of the inerrancy and the sufficiency and the infallibility of Scripture. They're not just asking other pastors around town what they think about the inerrancy of Scripture. They have to interview members of our own church congregation about the inerrancy of Scripture. And some of you have already been interviewed for this. And you know one of the questions they ask is, how well or how good of a job do you think our pastor, which is me, is doing at preaching the word of God and upholding and living and abiding by the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. I hope you say good things about me. <laughs> it's something that is going to come up here very soon at a Saturday morning breakfast. What have you learned? What have you learned about other churches? What have you learned about me? What have you learned about the elders in our church? What have you learned about our church? And how now do we apply this to you as you get ready to step into pastoral ministry? That's just one example. It's going to take two to three years for us to work through all of the different truths of Scripture. At the end of those two years, we sit down for what you're aware of is commonly referred to as the licensing examination. 
the deacons and the elders of First Baptist Church will sit down. They will sit down. The whole congregation will be invited to observe. They will have nothing but a Bible in front of them. And we, on the other side of the table, the elders and the deacons, as well as the ordained men from other churches, will ask them any question we want and we'll take as long as we want and we'll interview them until we're satisfied and they have to answer our questions to our satisfaction with nothing but a Bible in front of them and they must defend every answer from the Word of God. Following that, we will convene at a later time. We'll discuss how they did. You will have observed it firsthand, and then we will make a recommendation to you as a church. Do you think this man should continue into pastoral ministry, or do you think that they have not shown themselves adequately prepared? If you vote that they should continue, then that will be the third vote we have taken, if you're keeping count. And they will enter into another year of, apl- of practical, applied, hands-on pastoral ministry where they will be given more opportunities to preach. They will be called upon to serve with us in the hospitals, doing visitation. They take on a more prominent role in discipleship, one-on-one. And at the end of that year, we say to the church, how have they done this last year in shepherding you? Are they ready to be turned loose And then you get another vote. And if you vote favorably then, all we're saying as a church is that these men are indeed called, trained, and ready for pastoral ministry. So we've had four votes just to get to the point of saying these men are ready, but we have not necessarily called them to be our pastors. Which is then followed by a fifth vote. If they want to be pastors with us here at First Baptist Church at that point, They may be saying, hey, I've had it. This has been too much work and effort. I'm out of here. We've never had anybody say that, but you kind of feel like that sometimes. At which point in time, you are asked whether or not you as a church want to install them as pastors. Now, that's a lot of hand stretching and a lot of hand raising. If all of that goes properly, then when it comes time for us to actually confer authority, to actually symbolically demonstrate that before God, when it actually comes time for us to lay hands, there should be no doubt in our mind that these men are indeed fitted and equipped and ready to shepherd us. But ask the question, where is the gospel in all of this? Look back at verse 22. Do not be hasty. Did you hear the warning? Don't be quick to do it. What is the gospel in this verse? Once upon a time, we were sinners who didn't want anyone or anything or any God above telling us how best we could live our lives or how we might aspire to the greatest possible blessing. We weren't hasty for pastoral leadership, just the opposite. We shunned it. We rejected it. We ran from it. And yet, the gospel that we see here in this warning is that God has come into our lives and he's worked in such a way that we now, in humble submission before the Father above, recognize that our deepest joy can be had, the greatest blessing can be reached for if we would submit to God through his word as men, faithful men with character were brought before us by God 
investigated by our church and appointed to the task to preach God's word so that we could have the maximum blessing in our lives. The gospel here is once upon a time we didn't want God and now the danger is we're gonna be too quick to appoint men who might not be the right guys in order to bless us and to preach God's word to us. The gospel in this passage is that God loves the church. He loves you and he has men appointed for you. The gospel here is that God has worked in your hearts in such a way, whereas before you rejected any kind of authority or any kind of leadership in your life, now the danger is you might be too quick for it. Isn't that remarkable? How God takes a bunch of people like you and me, and me especially. You notice I'm wearing my Texas polo this morning. Texans are not people who want to submit to anyone or anything. We're cowboys, eh, Schmitty? Yeah, he's giving me the look back there. I stand before you as Exhibit A. It's a joy to me to have men preach the word of God to me. I know I do it the majority of the time here, but you can't even possibly understand how much of a blessing it is for me to sit there and have this amazing brother here open the word and share God's truth with me. Or Ryan, who has been put on a no-fly list. I'm sure it is for the chicken pox. That's the gospel in this verse. It poses a question. Is that your heart? Has God worked in your heart in such a way? Has he done such a work of grace in you to where you long for good pastoral leadership to the point that you would be too quick to get the right man? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. We thank you for the ways